So last week we began a look at the life of Job, and if you were here, you may remember that I said that this book is probably about 4,500 years old, most likely the first book that was actually written down. Uh, so the very first inspired book uh, that would be included in the Bible uh, was uh, answered this age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people, which, by the way, I find very intriguing that God would do that. that the very first thing that we learn uh, in the first book that was most likely written down is uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And I just want to remind you, and I was reminded just a little bit ago this morning, there is a battle for your soul that's going on now, even, even right now, even in this moment. There's a battle for your soul that is going on that you don't see, just like Job didn't see. But it's happening. And God is putting his money on you. And so... We're going to walk through this, all right? Uh, last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 2 and how Job lost it all. He lost everything. He lost, uh, he's left bankrupt and homeless and helpless and childless, and he's standing beside the 10 fresh graves of his children. And uh, we, we hear his wife heaving deep sobs of grief as she kneels beside him, and he says, you know, whether God gives to us or God takes away from us, we're going to follow him. And I wonder if it isn't a silent whisper, a secret whisper in his ear where she says, seriously, why don't you just curse God and die? And the suffering isn't over. By the end of the second chapter, Job is covered with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And we find this man who had everything going for him, everything going for him. He's sitting in a pile of ashes with broken pottery, scraping his flesh. I uh, read about a Sunday school teacher who was telling her class the story of the Good Samaritan. You may know that. It's one of the stories that Jesus told in New Testament Gospels. A man is on a road, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead. I mean, he, they've just destroyed this man physically. And she described it all in vivid detail so her students could really just sort of step into the drama of the whole thing. And then she asked them, listen, if you, if you saw a person lying on the roadside, all wounded and bleeding like this man, what would you do? And one of the little girls in her class said, I think I'd throw up. Uh, and I wonder... If that's not what we would have done, right? If we had happened upon not the situation, but the person of Job in this situation. So, uh, hey, thanks for being in worship with us today. Uh, if this is your first time, my name is Mike. Appreciate you joining us online uh, today as well. And if this is your first time with us, thank you so much for being with us there. Uh, uh, we are uh, in this series on Job, and if you missed last week's and we had some situations last week. I understand Facebook, we couldn't get to cooperate, but uh, I hope you can go then check that out. It's on YouTube. I think it's at our website as well. Uh, I read there's an organization from Europe known as the BLTC Research. When I first heard of it, I thought they were talking about a sandwich. Uh, but the company was founded in 1995 in order to promote what they call paradise engineering. And one of their stated goals on their website is to deliver genetically pre-programmed well-being. According to their scientists, using our super minds and genetic engineering, mankind can abolish both physical and mental pain altogether. And their plan is to create super health 
and usher in a cruelty-free world, no suffering, which is an interesting worldview, by the way, but you know as well as I do, that is absolutely ridiculous to think we could do. We saw last week that we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. In fact, both God's word and our experience. So your, my experience, experience throughout history is that we, we, suffering helps us mature. And the experience of suffering teaches us, causes us, almost forces us to lean more heavily into God in our lives. Suffering may not be desirable, but it is certainly profitable. And no amount of genetic engineering can take suffering out of the world no matter how smart we prove ourselves to be. The scientists at BLTC are trying to create heaven on earth. And I want to say it's coming, but they're not going to bring it about. Only one will bring it about, and that is our father. Uh, look at what Job said. Job chapter 6, he says this, If only my anguish could be weighed and all of my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. And I wonder if you've ever been there, if you have ever felt that hopeless, helpless. Last, last, this week in our Life is Hard, God is Good series, we're going to look at the realities of this type of pain in our lives because in the days and weeks that followed what happened last week, Job discovers that the pain persists uh, long after the initial shock of the loss had worn off. In fact, in chapter 19, he lists the different types of prolonged pain that he is experiencing. He says he's alienated from his family. His friends have forgotten him. His servants treat him like a stranger, loathsome to his own brothers. The kids in the neighborhood scorned him. His closest friends despised him. He says that even his breath, it's so, his breath is offensive to his wife. The truth is, pain often persists for a long time. For some, that pain lasts their whole life. And that's a harsh reality. I told you last week, there are going to be some things that we hear, some things that we learn from Job that we talk about that we don't want to hear. It, it will go against what we want to feel. But, it's, but it is the reality. There is no magic formula to deal with this. And I wish I, could, wish I could tell you it wouldn't be that way. But there are no guarantees However, I believe there are some important truths we need to understand this morning, especially as we face the challenge of pain that seems to go on and on. So if you picked up the, jo the book of Job last week, if you began uh, the reading plan that we've got going on through the Uversion Bible app, or if you began reading along with what we're doing, you, you may be surprised how the book changed. Uh, what we looked at last week, most likely... Uh, the most well-known part of the story of Job, what happens in chapters 1 and 2, it's written in story format. But in chapter 3, we make an abrupt change. Uh, from chapter 3 through the rest of the book, it's written as poetry. So that's, that's why there's a difference there. Uh, and in that poetry, here are three lessons we need to learn about the persistence of pain. So we're going to talk about what it means to live on mission, which is how do we live out our faith? We're going to live on mission. When we do that, it means that the deeper the wound, and this is important for us to recognize, the deeper the wound, the longer it's going to take to heal. But that means I have to make a decision. I have to decide to be patient in that healing. Job discovered that the losses in his life cut to the heart. Once wealthy, the poverty that he was experiencing reminded him Constantly, I would think of the financial loss that he had experienced. He probably missed his children six weeks after de their death, six months after their death. 
even more than he did when it initially happened. Almost always when a loved one dies, there's this flurry of activity right away. There's arrangements to be made. People are, are huddling around you. The church drops off food. But it seems like it's not that long afterward when people, they have to go back to their lives. And you find yourself living in the past. Maybe you're flipping through a photo album and you come across a picture that you forgot was in the book. And tears just seem to come immediately to your eyes. Or you're walking through the mall and as you walk through you catch the scent of someone's cologne or perfume. And it was the cologne or perfume you associated with that person. And it just floods your heart with grief. Or you see a... You see a young mom pushing a baby carriage and your own sense of loss, that ache in your chest is nearly overwhelming. You know, psychologists talk about the grieving process moving from shock to denial to anger to bargaining to depression and finally to acceptance. What I want to make sure that you understand, we talk about it like that. It doesn't happen in two or three weeks. More than likely, it's going to take two or three years to get all the way through that. The Bible tells us that Job said, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. If I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. And in chapter 7, he says, my eyes will never see happiness again. You know, whether the pain is physical or emotional, intense suffering, it often will linger for a long time. And that reality may seem overwhelming to us, but you, and you might begin to wonder if you'll ever enjoy life again, if you'll ever feel normal again, if you'll ever smile again. The deeper the wound, the longer it takes to heal. And frankly, for some, it won't heal until eternity. It will last this whole lifetime. So we have to make the decision that we're going to be patient because patience will not come naturally during that time. Another tough reality is that if we're going to live on mission, if we're going to live through our faith in the darkest of days, uh, our friends will often uh, fail to misunderstand our pain. And while we want to trust our friends, the one that we need to really lean into because they will misunderstand us is we have to lean into God. And I know uh, this story, uh, if you know this story at all, you may have some preconceived notions about his friends when they heard that his life had been devastated, they immediately came to do, uh, to see what they could do. In Job 2, we read this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. By the way, we, we sure don't name kids the way we used to. Am I right? Uh, so if there's any of you who are pregnant and you're looking for names, I guarantee no other child in your child's class will have one of those names. Uh, but they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job and they set out from their homes and they met together with agreement. Look at these next words. They were going to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So they met together to go to his house so that they could do that. And when they saw him from a distance, look at, look at how they respond. They could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads, which was a sign of mourning. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was because they came to sympathize with him and to comfort him. I've got to tell you, that's the right thing. That's the right response. And they did the exact right thing at first. 
didn't try to solve anything. They weren't offering any advice. They just sat with him and cried with him and stayed close by in case he needed him, which is the perfect response. And you know it's the response that you want from time to time, just like this. There's a reason we resonate with that. But after seven days, Job begins to speak, and the words of his anguish came out of his mouth, and he cursed the day that he was born, and he wished that he were dead, and he declared the bitterness of his soul, and he was open. Listen, he was opening up in what he thought was the safety of his friends who could hear the overwhelming anguish of his heart. But instead of keeping their mouths shut and just letting Job unload, his friends felt like they needed to respond in some way to his anguish. And I don't know if you picked up on it uh, in the reading. We have this plan that we're doing together. If you want to be part of that, it's 10 days long. You can still jump in on it. But we're doing this reading in the YouVersion app, and one of the days in the reading you would have found this. Now, you have to remember that you are still, as it were, a spectator in an old theater play. Job does not know uh, the heavenly scenes, and the friends of Job also have no knowledge of the meeting of heavenly people with the Most High God. They, They act in a familiar reflex. They start reasoning and trying to explain why everything happened, uh, had happened. And in the reasoning, God frequently comes up in what they say as if they know and understand everything about God. And in a nutshell, what they're saying, their theological assessment of the situation is this. Listen, Job, we all know when you do the right thing, God rewards you. And when you do the wrong thing, God punishes you, which sounds right. And then they say to him, whatever you've done, it must have been horrendous for God to have punished you like this. Eliphaz says, as I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, they reap it. And at the breath of God, they perish at the blast of his anger. They are no more. Bildad said, when your children sinned against him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Can you imagine a friend of yours saying that to you after you just lost your children? Zophar went on to say, no, this God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, Job, you're not even getting the full blast of his wrath. Certainly he's taking it easy on you. And not to be outdone, Eliphaz chimes in again, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? And then they begin to speculate about what Job might have done to deserve this kind of wrath from God. Maybe he took advantage of his brothers. Maybe he stole somebody's property, refused to give water to the weary. Maybe he withheld, you know, food from the hungry. Maybe he sent widows away empty-handed, even though he was an incredibly wealthy and powerful man with many resources. Whatever it was, it must have been horrible to deserve all of this calamity that's falling on top of you. Job had brought this upon himself, and they had made up their minds. There was no doubt in their thinking about that. And they each go three rounds with Job, and they just keep pounding and pounding and pounding away at him. Don Baker, in his book, Pain's Hidden Purpose, sympathizes with Job's frustration. When he and his wife lost their only child, one woman said to him, God took your little boy because you didn't have the faith to believe that he would be healed. Shortly afterward, he broke out with a severe case of the shingles, and the man said, this is God telling you to slow down. And when he was on a mission trip uh, to the Philippines, he became seriously ill, and a friend would later say to him, this is God saying to you to stop going to foreign countries. I don't know if you've had friends say stuff like that to you. It can be frustrating when people claim to know the mind of God, especially when their opinions have nothing to do 
with what Scripture reveals about him. So if you're dealing with prolonged pain right now, please hear this. Usually your, free, your friends mean well, even when they blow it, especially when they blow it. They may say some insensitive, incredibly stupid things to you because they think they understand what you're going through. Sometimes they're afraid of silence, and so they try to fill that silence up with words, but the words aren't really helpful. But deep down, most likely they want what's best for you. They really do care about you. You may have other friends who just can't deal with what you're going through. And for the moment, they seem to disappear from your life. It's like they've ghosted you. If you would, and I think it will be helpful for you when you can to forgive them. Because when the pain eases up, it's likely they will try to slide back into your life. And there may still be other friends that you'll actually make as you walk through a difficult time. Because sometimes when you walk through a time like this, a Bible study group or a support group of some sort, they actually rise to the occasion and God uses them to help you deal with the issues in your life. But I want to encourage you to, to be patient. Uh, our last reality can be especially painful. If we're going to live out our faith, which is incredibly difficult to do in the darkest days of our lives, one, it means that God may remain silent and feel very distant, but I want to encourage you to still be awed by him. So following his children's death, Job worshipped God. We read that last week, saw that last week, which is, a, uh, uh, I mean, that was a great response. He knew where to go. And in Job 1.22, he said, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And he said to his wife, shall we accept only good from God and not trouble? Although honestly, sometimes I struggle with that. Maybe you do too. In chapter 13, he would say about God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him or yet I will trust in him. But as his suffering lingered, Job's confidence in God began to waver. Some of the things that he said, uh, Job 13, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Though I've cried, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And over and over again, he says these types of things. But I want you to remember, Job has no idea what's going on in the unseen realm. He does not know that, that uh, God has confidence in him. He's unaware that Satan has accused God of favoritism and accused Job of only trusting in God because of all the blessings that he has received in his life. Job didn't understand that God was allowing him to suffer in order to win a pivotal battle in heaven and that God would someday reverse his suffering and give him back his life. He just felt like God had checked out, wasn't interested anymore, and that he'd shut the door and closed him out for good. And again, what I'm describing, maybe some of you have felt at one time or another, maybe you feel it right now, because sometimes when pain is prolonged, feels like God is very far away from us. Dr. John Claypool used to preach at the Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville, and years ago, his little girl contracted leukemia. John and his wife and their entire church family prayed often for his daughter's healing, uh, but it did not come. And following a time of remission, she went into a severe relapse one Easter Sunday. He said the next two weeks in the hospital were hellish. Her eyes swelled shut, pain racked every part of her body. Claypool said that those weeks were physically exhausting and emotionally draining, and his faith was challenged in those moments like it had never been challenged before. 
But he said the worst moment came one night when his daughter asked him, Daddy, when will the leukemia go away? And he said, I don't know, honey. You know we're doing everything that we can uh, to find a, an answer to cure it. He said there was this long silence in the darkness, and then he heard her voice again. Have you asked God when the leukemia, leukemia is going to go away? And he hedged a bit, and he said, honey, you, you know how we prayed again and again for God to help us. But she said, Daddy, when you ask God when the leukemia is going to go away, what did he say? Claypool would later write, how do you respond to such childlike directness from the heavens seem utterly silent? And I just want to say, if you haven't experienced it yet, it's, it's very likely that you will. That there will be a time in your life when heaven seems silent to you. And God will feel very distant. But in those times, there's something important that you need to understand. There's a big difference between God's silence and his absence. Just because he isn't speaking, just because your life isn't making sense, just because the pain persists, it doesn't mean that God's not there. I imagine you've read about this, as I have, the rite of passage that some Native Americans would perform when a boy turned 12 years old, they would blindfold him, take him deep into the woods, and sit him down beside a tree. And the, the, the plan was, if he would sit there all night without removing the blindfold, then the next day he would be considered a man. But he would have to sit there alone, aware that there were predators nearby, unsure of what enemies might stumble upon him, lost in this battle of fears, of his own fears. Every, every time he heard a leaf rustled, or, or he heard a twig breaking, or he he heard animals scurrying around in the undergrowth that would send his heart pounding and his mind racing. But in the morning when he removed his blindfold, there would be his dad crouched just a few feet away from him with his weapon in his hand, ready to protect his son, guarding him. And though he was unaware of it, his dad was there watching over him the whole time. And I want to remind you that when you face times like this in your life, when it doesn't feel like it, and I just want to say this, your feelings will lie to you about the truth. Just because you feel something doesn't make it true. But God does the same thing for us. When you feel like you're all alone, when you feel like you're all alone, I want you to know you are not. God has said this to us, but now this is what the Lord says. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You belong to me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And you are precious and honored in my sight. And I love you. When the dangers of this dark world threaten us, when the pain in our life persists beyond all of our understanding, the cross reminds us that we can have confidence that our unseen Father is with us, shielding us, loving us, even though it doesn't feel like it, he's protecting us. So every week we have the opportunity 
to be reminded through our communion of what God has promised us and how he loves us. So I want you to look at verse 4 one more time, this time the way Eugene Peterson writes it in the message version of the Bible. God says, that's how much, that's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I would sell off the whole world to get you back. I'd trade the creation for you. But in reality, we, we know he didn't trade creation for us. He traded his son. He didn't give up the world. He gave up his world for you. Because he loves you. He has redeemed you. You are his. He has put his name on you. You are his child. He will never not be with you. Even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Your feelings are lying to you. God is with you. And so in just a moment, the bread that represents the body of Jesus that will hold, our, hold in our hands, the cup of juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus, remind us of those words, that this is how much we mean to him, that he would allow his son to go to the cross on our behalf. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a moment uh, to talk to God. So we'll just be real quiet. And I'm going to ask you that if that's where you are, that you recommit yourself to being awed by him and that you pledge back to him that you will trust him when life is hard and that you will remember that God is good. So why don't we pray and then I'll give you a moment. Father, this, this, this part of your book Not, not because Job went through that, but because of the moments or years of our lives that, that we have experienced. Maybe, maybe for some of us, they were in our rearview mirror, but we look back and it just hurts our heart. It wears us out to think about it. For others of us who are in the thick of it, at this very moment. And it's as if the enemy is enveloping us in darkness so that we can't see you. And your kingdom seems silent in our lives when we call out to you. We beg you. We cannot seem to hear your voice. And it feels like you're not with us anymore. And maybe you never were. So, Father, help us in this moment. As we draw near to this time when we remember, Jesus, that you gave your life for us. May we remember the promises that you have given us. That your word is true. And that you will never leave us to the very end of the age. 
because we belong to you. We are your children. You are our dad. So thank you that this moment pulls us back and helps us remember that. In Jesus, we pray this in your name. So we take the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body. And he said, as often as you do this, remember me. And so as we take this, what we remember is that he loves us. So let's remember him. that reminds us of his blood that was shed for us on the cross. And as we take this today, it reminds us that he loves us. And it is a pledge to him that we will love him too. So we remember. And so Father, we say to you again, trust you when you say that we are never out of your sight. We trust you when you say that you will be with us, not watching us from a distance. You'll be with us. When we walk through what, when we hear the words, the valley of the shadow of death, and we're walking through that in our lives. Even the psalmist reminds us that you are with us and that your rod and your staff, they bring us comfort. Help us to not allow the enemy to win one inch of our heart because it all belongs to you. So thank you for loving us. We love you too. In Jesus we pray this in your name.